Ephesians 3, the joy of this whole book. The first two chapters were a little gloomy. And this one starts out that way, but it has a great climax. And I know everyone loves this chapter. Um, it's a little different than the other two chapters because uh, instead of having the 22 alphabetically arranged verses, this one has 66, but that's neither here nor there. It's just longer. And it, I divided it up into three sections. One is, I am the man who's seen affliction. The second part, great is thy faithfulness. And three, the third part, prayer for deliverance and justice. So I was thinking when I was preparing the message, I was starting to think, well, Jeremiah was in the nation and he was watching it, all this tragedy happen. And many of the people I read were talking about nations going through times of tragedy. And they always said that when a nation goes through a time of tragedy, it always eventually settles on the individual level. The pain comes to every person in that nation. And the only thing I could think of in my life was 9-11. And we all remember what happened on that day. We all remember where we were, what we were doing. It only took 20 minutes for two planes to hit those buildings, and in 20 minutes, 3,000 people were dead. 6,000 were hurt, and America was on her knees. For the first time, we had been attacked on American soil, and I don't think anyone's ever going to forget that day if they were alive. <clears throat> but for Jeremiah, it was far worse. He was witnessing the death of a nation, and not just any nation. This was God's nation. This was Jerusalem being destroyed. This was God's dwelling place, the home of his temple. He called it his footstool, and these were his covenant people. So Jeremiah starts the poem out in a very personal way. He starts out, he says, Jeremiah says, I am the man. I am the man who has seen affliction. This prophet experienced so much pain in his lifetime. It, it, it was emotional pain, physical pain, spiritual pain, and he's watching his city be destroyed. His people killed, his people taken captive, and he was solely mistreated and yet he was a godly man. He, he was speaking directly to God, the very one who was sending the suffering. The pronoun he, referring to God himself, occurs 21 times in only 18 verses. So the prophet is laying bare all that he's experiencing under God's wrath. He holds nothing back. I'm not going to read every verse, but um, he uses very unique imagery in this poem to describe the pain he was going through. He says, I am the man who has seen great affliction. Because of the rod of his wrath, he has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. In dark places, he has made me dwell. Like those who have long been dead, he has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. I have become a laughingstock to all my people, and their mocking is a song all day long. He has made me cower in the dust, and my soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. And he ends by saying, so I say, my strength has perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. Jeremiah wasn't just any man. He just wasn't any citizen. He was specifically called by God before he was ever born. In the womb, he was called to be a prophet to warn the nation of Israel, Jeremiah 1.5. He himself wasn't guilty of all the idolatry and the evil. In fact, he was a godly man. But he spent 40 plus years of his life prophesying to a nation that did nothing but wickedness. But in the end, he became a victim of the fallout. 
when God's wrath was eventually poured out during the Babylonian invasion, Jeremiah got stuck suffering right along with everybody else, right in the middle of it, which begs the question, why do the good suffer with the unrighteous? Now he feels that God has abandoned him because God's silent. God's shutting out his prayer. And I'm sure there's not one person in this room that hasn't had that happen to them when they've been praying for even decades for something to happen and the Lord's just not answering the prayer. And he may not even answer it in our lifetime. But it doesn't mean he doesn't hear. And Jeremiah hasn't done anything wrong in praying. And yet he's been horribly mistreated. He's been made fun of. He's been beat up. They tried to kill him. They threw him in a cistern. Does that sound like someone we know? I mean, he was really mistreated, and yet he was a righteous man. So now he was reaching the end of his rope because his last two statements were kind of scary. He said, my strength is perished, and so has my hope from the Lord. He was being totally honest with the Lord about how he was feeling. We can do that, too. When we are suffering, we might as well tell the Lord how we're feeling because guess what? He already knows. So we don't need to minimize it. We, we can call it like it is, and the Lord is great about that. I mean, he's compassionate, and it's okay to grieve. Jeremiah was at his wit's end, but the problem with being at your wit's end and grieving is that it's dangerous to stay in that place. If we allow ourselves to stay in that place, if Jeremiah allows himself to stay in that place, he'll be in a hopeless state. And then you lose all perspective of what's going on. And he was getting into that state right here. Um, the only personal <clears throat> thing I can think of is when my son suddenly died and I got kind of blindsided. I had a million questions for God and none of which he gave me any answers. And I just had to realize I had to give it to him, that he had all the answers, that the issues of life and death were in his hands, and that every soul was his. So at, it's not like it happened overnight, but it took a little while. If I had remained where I was, it would not have been good for me later on. So it's very tempting to blame God. It's very tempting to feel guilt, guilty, like you should have done something to prevent it, or feel pity for yourself. But if it were not for the word of the Lord, preaching it to myself constantly, that's the only thing that gives you hope and gets you out of that hole. And Jeremiah was just about to sit in that hopelessness when a huge beam of light shines down through the darkness in the pinnacle of this entire book, which is verses 19 through 24. This poem kind of has a crescendo because the first two chapters start low and then 19 through 24 just brings you to this big, huge mountain. So 19 through 24, Jeremiah remembers something in his hopelessness. Remember my affliction, my wandering, the wormwood, and the bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. But this I recall to mine. Therefore, I have hope. It is because of the Lord's mercy we are not consumed. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I have hope in him. This passage is probably the most memorized passage in all of scripture. We sing that wonderful hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, and it's a good thing that we do to remind ourselves because we are so forgetful. He was in the dark suffering, in a cistern for a while, in a prison for a while. Wherever he is at this point, He's on the brink of giving up on God because it's dead silence where his prayers are concerned. So he stops and his soul remembers something. He's recalling who God is.
And he knows this, who God is, from God's word. God had a history with his people, promised long ago, and all those things came to pass, and anything he's promised otherwise will come to pass, because God never changes, and he cannot lie. He has a history of being faithful to his covenant people of Israel, a history that Jeremiah knew very well. He remembered God's promises to Moses and to Joshua. And for us, it's no different, because Hebrews 13.5 says, The Lord has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And God has not changed. Hebrews 13.8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So it's not any different for us than it was for Jeremiah. When we are suffering, we need to remember just what Jeremiah remembered, God's character. His word reveals who he is. He cannot lie, that he never changes, that he's always faithful, that he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you, that he is sovereign, and that means over the good and the bad, whatever he has put in your life, Romans 8, 28. The thing we can't trust is our feelings, our emotions. They are dangerous, and their enemy, our enemy, will use them against us, causing us to doubt God's love and goodness. We must constantly be preaching against this. How many times has someone come up to you and said, well, if God is so good and God is so loving, well, why does he allow this? Or why are children dying? And, or something. But it's of my opinion that this kind of talk is satanic. That's how we got here in the first place. Satan whispered to Eve in the garden and said, you mean he didn't give you all the trees? He, he kept one from you, so there must be something he's not doing right. And that's how we ended up here. So uh, doubting God and his love and his goodness and that he's doing the right thing for us no matter what it looks like down here is something we have to be really careful of. Um, so now Jeremiah, he was hopeless. His tune uh, changed really suddenly when he was talking about um, the faithfulness of the Lord, and he continues. He says, the Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him. To the person who seeks him, it is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. The Lord will not reject forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness, for he does not afflict willingly, nor does he grieve the sons of men to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in a lawsuit of these things the Lord does not approve. Who is there who speaks and it doesn't come to pass? Unless the Lord has commanded it, it is, not from the, is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Why should any living mortal man offer complaint in view of his sins? So in the end, it is our view of God that will dictate our circumstances, not the other way around. So Jeremiah says God is pleased when we wait on him. When we wait silently for the Lord, we are showing submission to him. When we seek him, God is pleased. And it is good to learn from God early in life, Jeremiah says, because it gives us a history with God. To look back on when we are old, we can see his faithfulness across the span of a lifetime. We do not grieve like those who do not have hope. And on this side of the cross, we certainly don't. God has demonstrated his love to us in Christ that he died for us. The Lord says, uh, Jeremiah says that the Lord has no pleasure in our pain and he will not inflict forever. He has no pleasure even in the death of the wicked, Ezekiel 18. 
He does not afflict willingly, but when he does, it's always for our good and his glory. He's not taking joy in it. It would be like a father who's disciplining his son and then goes out of the room laughing. That would, never, that would not be a good father. It is good when we're disciplined by the Lord. Hebrews 12, 5, 6. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when you're reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. So it's actually proof that we are his children and that he loves us. God's sovereignty, Jeremiah says, is observed in the fact that both goodness and calamity come from him. Now, this sounds strange, but Isaiah 45 says, I form the light and create darkness. I make well. I make well-being and create calamity. And Job even remarked on this in Job 2.10 when his wife told him, just curse God and die. Look at you. Everything's a mess. And no one could say this better than Job. He was a godly man, and he did not know where all this adversity was coming from. But he said to his wife, shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? So it should not surprise us when these things happen. And I think a lot of us are surprised when trials come, even though we've been warned passage after passage that we are going to have them. First Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes on you to test you as if you, some strange thing was happening to you. But rejoice in that you share with Christ in his sufferings. Be glad when his glory is revealed. God is controlling every atom in the universe, every cell in our bodies. And it is a good thing because if he wasn't, he would not be in control of getting us out of any adversity. If God is not sovereign, then God is not God. And just as God used the Babylonians to chastise Israel for her wickedness and her idolatry, he also can use trials in our lives to discipline us as well. But adversity does not always mean sin is involved. Sometimes it's the Lord just trying to teach us or conform us into the image of his son. I know so many godly people who have had one calamity after the other. But the good thing is God is glorified by their testimony in it. It's their response to it that people are looking at. So Jeremiah continues to say, in view of how sinful we are, we should be thankful to God and his mercy for not wiping us out entirely because by rights, we don't deserve anything from him. How we are responding to the adversity that God sends us means everything. Are we murmuring? Are we feeling sorry for ourselves? Are we complaining to other people? Since God has been so merciful to keep us in his care, our response should probably want to be, be one of submission, prayerfulness, and realizing that it's only God that's going to determine the type, the duration, and intensity of every trial. And if it's part of your life right now or part of my life right now, it's because he brought it to me or you for a reason, for a season. So having some hindsight, we have hindsight now. Jeremiah didn't know everything then, but having hindsight now, we can look back and see that God's people did have somewhat of an end in sight because their captivity didn't go on forever. It was 70 years, so there was an end. But God says, uh, Jeremiah says, God will not reject forever. So if we, can re view, if we can view these trials as temporary, that's good. Um, in light of eternity, if we can just keep eternity in view, because some things will be there our whole lives. Some things may be taken away in our lifetime. But if we view these things in, in light of eternity, it's so much easier to take it. In Jeremiah 29, 11 is one of my favorite passages. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for good and not evil, to give you future and a hope. He was speaking to Israel, speaking to Jeremiah. And I think we can claim that verse as well. Because 
God is a God of a future and hope. Jeremiah continues in the last part of this poem. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We lift up our hearts and our hands towards God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. Thou hast not pardoned. Thou hast covered thyself with anger and pursued us. Thou hast slain and hast not spared. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees from heaven. My enemies, without cause, hunted me down like a bird, and they have silenced me in the pit. And I said, I'm cut off. I called on the name of the Lord, and he heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from me, from my prayer for relief, from my cry for help. Thou did draw near when I called on thee, and thou did say, do not fear. O Lord, thou did plead my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. Please judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance and all their schemes against me all day long. They sit and they mock in song. Thou will recompense them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. Thou will give them hardness of heart. Thy curse will be on them, and you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens. Jeremiah says in the beginning, let's examine ourselves and return to the Lord and lift up our hands in prayer. Self-examination is a very important part to our lives. Keeping short accounts with God is a very good thing. Watching and repenting of any known sins keeps us in fellowship with the Lord. Unconfessed sins will only block our prayer and choke our prayer life. Think about the people that you can't pray for if you're in unconfessed sin. And the Lord eventually did answer Jeremiah and said to him, do not fear. He was eventually rescued from the pit by an Ethiopian eunuch, uh, one of King Zedekiah's eunuchs, but eventually all Jer Jerusalem fell to the enemy. And it was then that Jeremiah asked God to repay his enemies. One thing Jeremiah knew well was that it was God was just and that vengeance belonged only to him, that God would repay these people who had destroyed his people. And God did exactly that. He judged Babylon for what she had done. It was not long before the Persians conquered them and they were destroyed as a nation. So it was not a happy ending for any of them. But we don't want to have a lack of understanding when it comes to suffering, especially when it happens to the godly. Jeremiah and Job were two good examples. And in the case of Israel, Jeremiah was there his whole life, 40, 50 years, even prophesying to the captives but was certainly mistreated the whole way and eventually died in Egypt. But he was totally undeserving. And like I said before, Jesus is the same way. He came as a perfect sacrifice, was beaten, was mistreated, was mocked. But he didn't deserve it. He came as an atonement for our sins. So I look at today, I look at churches today, and I see what a warped theology of suffering they have because they preach nothing but blessing, health, wealth, happiness, like the prosperity gospel. And that was never promised to us in scripture. Jesus certainly didn't promise it. John 16, says, in this world, you'll have tribulation. Not you might, we'll think about it. You will have tribulation. And I like how Paul described the apostles in 1 Corinthians 4. He said, to this present hour, we apostles are hungry, thirsty, poorly dressed, beaten by others, homeless, labor working, slandered, we've become the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. Now that does not sound like anybody that owns a private jet. I don't know, but so 
suffering centers around God and his people. He brings it. He controls it. He uses it to build our faith. He uses it to glorify himself. And we always end up being much closer to him because of it. So there's a lot of principles that we can use. Um, I've, I've got a few here. This is a biblical view of suffering. Focus on God's character, not the problem. Number two, you are not the only one experienced this. Others have gone down this path before you. It will not last forever. Always look in view of eternity. Number four, God has sovereignly brought this into your life. Number five, there's a purpose in it, God's glory. Number six, examine yourself in case it is for sin and repent. Number seven, remember God's history, both biblically and personally in your own life. The next one, wait quietly and patiently for the Lord. The next one, as bad as it could be, it could always be worse. Learning that one. And the next one, don't be surprised by suffering. And the last one, what does the Lord, this is a good question to ask, what does the Lord want me to learn from this? Um, I'm going to close with a quote from a really good book that I urge everybody to read. It's Trusting God, Even When Life Hurts by Jerry Bridges. Probably everybody knows this book, but uh, I, I can't stop reading it. And I'm underlining it so much that now I can't read the print. But anyway, um, this is just a quote out of here. When we are in the midst of adversity and calamity after calamity seems to be surging upon us, we'll be tempted to doubt God's love. Not only do we struggle with our own doubts, but Satan seizes these occasions to whisper accusations against God, such as, if he loved you, we wouldn't have allowed this to happen. My experience suggests that Satan attacks us far more in the area of God's love than in his sovereignty. We cannot keep from being tempted, but if we are to honor God by trusting him, we must not allow such thoughts to lodge in our minds. To question the goodness of God is, in essence, to imply that God that man is more concerned about goodness than God. To suggest that man is kinder than God is to subvert the very nature of God. It is to, den- to deny God, and this is precisely the thrust of the temptation to question the goodness of God that went back to the Garden of Eden. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much for your word and how your word is not intended to just be read like a book, but to change our lives. And Lord, we just pray that it will, that all of these things can be used in our lives when trials come or even with the trials that we're in now, Lord. And we just thank you for for your Savior, Lord, and the fact that he was mocked and scourged just like Jeremiah, but he was our atonement. In Jesus' name, amen.